I might be one of the few fangirls out there, but I have a feeling that there are a lot of guys who have a serious bromance on my next guest on the Great Flip podcast. I don't know, but we're going to be talking about self-defense, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, UFC, MMA, Krav Maga, and just life lived well. With me today is my guest, Stefan Kesting. Google his name and you will find a kingdom of online resources teaching people how to do Brazilian jiu-jitsu and a lot of other cool martial arts. Now, where the Great Flip teaches girls and introduces girls to self-defense and Brazilian jiu-jitsu, his resources picks it up and runs with it. Right now, he has a male-dominated audience, but guys, here come the girls. Check out this next podcast. Here we go. Welcome to the Great Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jody, and I have a goal with this podcast to uh, connect resources and connect influencers in the area of self-defense, nutrition, and motivation for girls and their families. And today I have an expert in the field that I'm very excited to introduce to my audience and my followers. I think I'm slightly, I know I'm a very big fan of him. I'm slightly a, a maybe a creepy stalker fan of his. I don't know if he knows that or not, but um, I've been following him. <laughs> so I've been following him and um, he's been doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu and self-defense and much more than that for a long time. And I want to get his expertise because he's also an expert in online self-defense far beyond from what I'm doing. So I'm just going to cut to the chase and introduce him. His name is Stefan Kesting and he's with a uh, website and company called grapplearts.com. Hi, Stefan. How are you? Very well. Thank you so much for having me on your show, Jody. A couple of things I want to do. I want to talk about, obviously, the whole online self-defense kingdom that you have built. But then I just want to talk to you also about um, one of your emails you sent out a couple of days ago really hit me, uh, just talking about beyond self-defense as a sport or a fitness thing, but really a self-defense against disease and a, a more like a lifestyle and nutrition. And you brought the whole holistic puzzle together for me, which is really what I'm hoping to do and I'm trying to do for girls. So Let's start with who you are and why I'm talking to you and your your little kingdom that you created and um, how that will benefit girls. Sure. A very niche little world of, of man-hugging and now increasingly female-hugging, although that sounds very wrong, uh, while wearing spandex or pajamas. Sure. Um, and I'm very glad that you mentioned the holistic thing, and I think I can make that very, very not flaky for people. So I want to circle back to that for sure. You know, a lot of people, when they hear the word, word holistic, they kind of tune out like, oh my God, the guy's going to start talking about crystals or chakras, and I'm very far away from that. So I, I, I would like to talk about that. But if so, you just want to hear about my martial arts background? I mean, when did you even start or how did you even find Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and to turn it into online training? Like every other kid growing up in the 70s, I wanted to be both a Kung Fu master like Bruce Lee and a ninja, especially towards the late 70s, because that was all the craze, right? And there was all these books out, all these magazine articles showed ninjas doing amazing things and vanishing in puffs of smoke. And there was nothing cooler. Were you a... You were, a, were you a teenage mutant nope, mutant no, no, ninja turtle no, wannabe? I, I managed to avoid that. I was a serious ninja enthusiast. So I read all the books by Stephen K. Hayes and anything that came out by Hatsumi or almost all of which is uncomfortable now to say is hogwash. But at the time, it seemed pretty legit because I hadn't developed my powers of being able to discern fantasy from reality. So I wanted to be a ninja. 
Clearly, my mom was not in favor of me being a ninja. So then I figured the next best thing was to do some kind of martial art. She didn't want young Stefan punching people in the head. And she didn't really know different martial arts, but she knew I was not doing karate. I was not doing jujitsu. I was not doing any kind of sword fighting. And it took four years of lobbying. And eventually I got to judo. So actually, my first formal introduction into martial arts was judo, which I did for about three years without appreciating what I was doing. Because I really wanted to be swinging swords and climbing fences and throwing smoke bombs or doing that super secret Chinese stuff where you touch a person at the right pressure point, they collapse, all of which is hogwash. I already like your mother very much, though, that she kept <laughs> you away from that. <laughs> Well, she was doing her best, but right. you know, where there's a will, there's a way. So I eventually managed to move into Kung Fu and spent a whole bunch of years doing that and prancing around, you know, imagining that I was hitting pressure points and imagining I was defeating multiple opponents and that if I just did enough forms, if I just did enough kata, the term isn't kata in Kung Fu, but I'm just saying that so people understand, that I would eventually become an effective martial artist. And by effective, the baseline really is, can you defend yourself, right? It's a martial art. So yeah, there are all kinds of ancillary benefit from martial arts training, and I'm a huge fan of them. But the bottom line is, can you deal with somebody who's bigger than you, stronger than you, in your face, and either threatening you or trying to punch your teeth down your throat? Over time, I shifted, went into many different martial arts, became instructors in some of them, very strongly influenced by Danny Nasanto and the whole uh, JKD movement. Uh, lots of Kajukembo training with a really good instructor, Filipino martial arts, Thai boxing. And then came the UFC. So we already knew that grappling was important because Danny Nasanto, years before the UFC came out, was already telling us that in Japan, when they were doing shoot fighting, so shoot fighting was a precursor of MMA, was an early form of MMA, that although they could punch and kick and knee and do all these other seemingly deadly techniques, most of the matches, not all of them, but most of them ended up on the ground and ended by submission. So we already knew that it was important. And then came the Gracie in action tape, just showing the Gracie family fighting in Brazil and fight after fight after fight after fight, going to the ground and finishing on the ground. So we, we started an informal training group. And I was very lucky that my instructor at the time was open-minded and totally supported us rolling around the ground, not knowing at all what we were doing, just having a vague idea that it's better to be on top than on bottom. And over the years, as there started being more jiu-jitsu instruction, I started training with formal instructors. My first instructor was a blue belt. I learned a ton from him. I still use stuff to this day, 20 years later, that he showed me. People say you can't learn from blue belt. That's absolute garbage. Of course you can learn from a blue belt. If he's a conscientious blue belt or she, if they've got a background, they're able to teach and they've got a wide enough understanding and they didn't just get that blue belt because they're good at two moves. Absolutely can learn from them. Trained with Marcus Suarez, Eric Paulson, lots of other high-level black belt. And and got my black belt after about 10 years of training. I think it was nine years of training and started grapple arts along the way before I was a black belt, incidentally, and have really been subsumed by that. I still enjoy the other martial arts. I still enjoy the self-defense aspects of martial arts, but I think jujitsu has got some huge advantages. It's not a complete system, but it's a very fun system. And if you have a little bit of an understanding of the other ranges and the other tools, then you can really go far in jujitsu without some of the downsides of the other martial arts. The downsides include having unrealistic fantasy fantasies about what works or training realistically, but then inflicting inevitable brain trauma on yourself, right? So you've got a dichotomy with a striking-based martial art. Either you go into fantasy world and you do rehearsed technique, maybe rehearsed technique against pressure, but that's still not the same as sparring it, or you're actually sparring it and it's hard to spar without taking brain trauma. So that's that's kind of an overview. You know, I, as, I, as I stalked you on the internet, there were a lot of people wondering, someone I think even mentioned like, hey, he doesn't have his bio or he doesn't talk 
much about you know, who he is on his own website, but you're just filled with immediate. That's the ninja I know. speaking. <laughs> so you've just uh, revealed yourself a little bit here. So thank you. And I'm learning a lot myself because I am much of a latecomer to the whole martial arts deal. And I came in with the Gracie uh, legacy and I tra- train at a Gracie Baja school. And uh, so, of course, I love my training and I love my professor and I love what I'm learning. And that whole jujitsu for life, jujitsu for everyone philosophy is what kind of got me going in it. And um, I have two daughters and I know you have a daughter. And then really getting down to, okay, out of all these martial arts, and you've kind of said it, but maybe you can talk a little bit more digging deeper out of all these martial arts that, I mean, you've, you've gone through them all. And quite honestly, you, people like you have done the homework for me. And we just read online and said, my husband and I and said, okay, out of all these martial arts, we're going to go immediately to jujitsu. We're not going to mess with the other ones because of kind of what you said. I, I don't know what exactly, I know it's the ground game, but why why does it work? I mean, it really it really does work because my husband's he's like 250 and I'm 120 and he has told his friends, look, if we're standing up, she's in trouble. But if I get on the ground, I'm in trouble. And um, I did just get my purple belt. So I'm still learning. But like, it, why does it work? Congratulations. You're moving into a serious and very difficult to achieve belt country. Uh, well, first of all, thank you. Thank you. Just a I, I appreciate the sentiment, but I have not trained in every martial art. There are hundreds or thousands of martial arts out there. So, but but I've seen a fair bit of them and been exposed to e- even more thanks to the joys of the internet. As to why it works, there are sort of several different answers to that. In in the say the UFC, we already know that fights go to the ground a fair bit in the UFC, and the rules of the UFC are biased towards promoting stand-up fighting because stand-up fighting is more exciting. The UFC, in fact, may never have become as popular as it is if they just locked two people in the cage and let them go because it would almost inevitably go to the ground and stay mostly on the ground. But we see how often fights do go to the ground there. Fights go to the ground more than that in the real world for a couple of different reasons. First of all, usually, not always, it's rare that you end up in a fight in a in a parking lot or in a large open field. Of course it happens, but most of the time you're in a bar, you're in a small room, you're constrained by the environment, which means that something to trip over, something to get pushed up against, something the other guy falls over is just more common. It's more abundant in the natural environment. So that's one. Number two, it's a very natural reaction. If if we're the same size and you're punching me and you're getting the better of that and I don't like getting punched, I'm going to grab onto you. Boxers do it. That's why in boxing, they have referees to separate two boxers who grabbed onto each other. It's very rare that you see two boxers come out of the corner. And remember, these are boxers who spent their whole life training on how to knock somebody out. And they're in peak physical condition often. And they've done tons of weight training and tons of cardio and tons of pinpoint accuracy and just objectively have a much harder punch. Super rare for two boxers to come out of the corner and one guy to drop the other on the first exchange. So most of the time they end up clinching quite a bit in the middle of their fight. And the referee's one of his jobs is to separate these fighters so they can get back to punching each other in the head. If you didn't separate them and they hung on to each other for long enough, probably at some point, even if there weren't any formal takedowns, they'd fall down to the ground. So the ground happens, especially with women. Most sexual assaults happen on the ground or horizontal or on a bed or on a couch. There's already the 
ground element. I'm not saying 100% of the time, but far more than two guys trying to duke it out. So especially for women, the ground does happen. It's completely unrealistic to not spend a significant amount of your training time there. So now we've got, you're on the ground, but there's sort of two or three levels of gains that can be got. The very first one, and it's often overlooked, is just comfort being on the ground in close proximity to people. I often say this, but if you and I were having this conversation in person as opposed to remotely, it'd be very strange if I came up to you and was speaking to you six inches away from your face. You really only do that with people that you're super intimate with or people that you're really mad with, right? If you're trying to intimidate somebody. So our comfortable range of having this conversation would be somewhere in the sort of one foot to five foot distance, right? We'd be sitting down and chatting and that's very comfortable. A lot of people freak out. They sort of have a induced claustrophobia as soon as you get on the ground. So you don't want that induced claustrophobia to hit you the first time if you're ever in a self-defense or in a, a self-protection type of scenario because it's it eliminates the mind, right? It, it generates fear and fear is the mind killer and you're not thinking. And thinking is the more, by far the most important thing you can do above and beyond technique. Like, should you be calling for help or not? Should you be fishing for that knife in your purse or not? Should you be trying to talk this guy out of attacking you or not? Should you be using your jujitsu skills or not? Like, what should you be doing strategically? And I can think of scenarios where all of those would be the right answer and all those would be the wrong answer because there's no one size fits all. So just being comfortable in that range. I don't mean comfortable like chilling out on the beach, comfortable, but, but comfortable not losing your mind just because there's close physical proximity. So that's that's a huge level of gain that for most people can be got fairly quickly just by being there and training. And of course, it's been normalized a little bit by watching, you know, jiu-jitsu becomes more of a mainstream activity and the UFC becomes more of a mainstream sport. But there are a lot of armchair quarterbacks going, oh yeah, I could totally do that armbar from the bottom there. But they just totally lack the experience of dealing with pressure and the experience of dealing with proximity and the experience of dealing with aggression. So all those things, jiu-jitsu can teach you very, very effectively above and beyond the great techniques, because there are great techniques too. Once you have the sort of the begin to chip away at the mindset, you can start working on the techniques. And of course, working on the techniques also develops your mindset because soon you're worrying about, well, you know, does the armbar work better if I grab here as opposed to here? And how do I break the guy's posture with my, what part of my leg do I use to pull the guy's head down to elevate my hips? Well, at that point, you're not going, oh my God, there's a guy between my legs. You're going, hmm, I wonder how I can most effectively break the arm. So that's a, that or force of submission. And that totally like nails it for the reason why we, we picked jujitsu too for our daughters is, uh, is kind of overcoming some of those fear factors and a fear factor, the number one fear factor. And, and even to this day, and it's also, it's kind of like a trust issue too. And it's taught me to trust, like I really have to trust the, the people, you know, guys and girls, but mostly the guys because they're bigger and they know just as much jujitsu as I do or more. And to trust that when I'm in those uncomfortable physical proximity positions that I can trust that they're going to be nice to me. And then you're right that my brain will actually work when I'm in those positions. But that physical touch is, I, I, in an earlier, one of my first podcasts, I uh, talked about, you know, physical location. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Like sometimes girls, my girls were like, you know, can we learn this at home? I don't want to go in that stinky gym or, you know, the dudes are just sweating all over me. And uh, I'm like, you have to get used to that feeling. Eventually you have to know what that feels like. And then you're right. So your brain works and then the physical touch, and then even just being physically in shape enough to manage yourself as you're being squished and knowing what to do. That's 
that's the number one thing for girls is that proximity. And, and you, you come to an interesting point there about trust, which really speaks to the team environment. That you, this fantasy of a martial artist going out into the forest and training by himself. This is a common myth back in the Kung Fu era of the 70s, right? Because every movie had this trope, right? For the big showdown, the guy goes into the forest and spends, has a big training montage hopping around like a monkey or jumping around like a praying mantis or whatever. And then he comes out and beats the bad guy. But the reality is you don't make any progress by yourself. I mean, you can make take some preliminary steps. You could maybe do the conditioning by yourself. You could begin to understand the bigger picture if you're reading books or reading articles or watching videos so that you're not completely lost when you go there. But the rubber meets the road when you have a training partner or training partners. And, and it really does come down to you can't learn it on your own. And you, you need training partners. They're the most important thing. I'll make an argument that your training partners are more important than your instructors. Instructors are great. They're, they're not unimportant. But if I had to choose having a great instructor, crappy training partners versus great training partners and just a so-so instructor, I would take the great training partners every time because that's how you actually ingrain this stuff to work and become instinctive. Now, obviously, if you've got great instructor and great training partners, that's the best scenario. That's But if it, if it was, was this false dichotomy that you had to choose between, I would choose the great training partners every time. Speaking on that, so you have an online platform like I'm uh, you know, hoping to build and slowly building, but you have hundreds of, of videos. And I mean, how do you, what's your setup or how do you encourage people to, you know, to find that partner and, and what do, what, what does your home mat look like? And it, cause I'm trying to encourage girls. I'm like, Hey girls, you know, to get started, you know, you can do this at home, get some mats, you know, but you're, you're, and I've tried to emphasize, you can maybe do a couple of the drills that I have solo, but you have to have a training partner. What, what are some of your ways to like kind of knock it into their heads? Like, look, you've got to have a, a trusted friend to do this with. Well, then you'd go back to what I had seven years ago, which was nine meter square. So one meter by one meter, a little bit bigger than one yard by one yard puzzle mats just nine of them. And I was living in a basement apartment and we would set them up in my kitchen. I, I was also going to train at clubs, but when I was doing the home training, we'd have my kitchen and we'd have to be careful because first of all, they weren't super great mats. So if you took a hard fall, like a, you, know, you certainly couldn't do throws on them. You could only do groundwork and you had to watch out for what kind of groundwork you were doing. Like if you were doing like high energy sweeps with one person standing and the other person on the ground, that could get painful. But they were crappy little half inch thick mats and I could still train on those. I've also trained, I think the strangest home dojo I've ever trained at was a little tiny native village in a town called South End in northern Saskatchewan. So this is two hours north of the last paved road, maybe three hours north. The last paved road in Saskatchewan, really getting out into the boonies in this native guy's basement. I think he had four puzzle mats. Now, I wouldn't recommend four puzzle mats. That's too small. I, I would say start with nine. So you're going to need a roughly nine foot by nine foot area. But I've worked on less. I've worked on less to start with. If you actually want the, the cheapest mat, I've got an article on my website called, I think it's the cheapest grappling mat. You get a tarp, just a you know, whatever, a nine foot by 16 foot tarp you can get from Home Depot, get some kind of plastic tent pegs, find some grass, pin it down on grass. And so there for less than 30 bucks, you've got pretty decent training area. It's not, you know, again, you're not going to be doing sacrifice throws on it or Makakomi style judo throws and just pile driver the guy into the ground. Let's be realistic. But you can get a fair amount of training there. And the thicker the grass, the less OCD the person is who's trimming it, the better. Just uh, from personal experience, be very careful if you use metal tent pegs, because if you roll over them, you can cut yourself. So uh, I'll say that a, a large tarpaulin with some plastic tent pegs is the cheapest mat and you get to be outside too. So 
life is good. I think uh, I think I'll go with the uh, puzzle mats to start out with oh, the cheap end. Actually, that's what I'm doing right now. And off Amazon, you can get get it pretty cheap. Yeah, I'd say invest a little bit more and get some thicker ones if you can afford them and if you got a place to store them. But if you can go inch thick, uh, your 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 body will thank you. For sure. So one other martial art I wanted to ask you about, and I think you and I talked about this in a, another phone call. And this was uh, a reason why I wanted to introduce girls to jujitsu instead of the martial art or the combat training uh, program called Krav Maga. I guess maybe I should back up a little bit, but you know, talking about training in jujitsu, which we know that's great because of the ground fight situation. But I guess when is a good age to start learning Krav Maga and when it, what is it good for? And even weapons training for that matter, because I think those kinds of things are good. I'm a, I'm a Second Amendment girl here in the States and I want my girls to train safely in any sport, you know, whether it's martial arts or, or learning how to use a gun or any of those kinds of things. Krav Maga is good, but walk me through why it's good and when it's good and when or when it's even necessary. Because I know it is when there's a, a pretty major struggle. You've got to just go nuts on your attacker, but there's a time and a place for it, I guess. And help me understand the benefits of Krav Maga. Well, I'm going to irritate a whole lot of Krav Maga practitioners because I'm going to say broad things that they're going to say, that doesn't apply to me. And it's great. If it doesn't apply to you, perfect, then you're doing it right. But as a generalization, most Krav Maga schools that I've seen, so there are qualified enough, from now I'm going to speak in absolutes, all Krav Maga everywhere, trains techniques that are fairly realistic with super high intensity, but it's with limited uh, opposition. So I'll just jump back to something that Daniel Santos said, which is that a martial art can consists of the techniques, the training equipment, and the training method. So let's say there's a technique. Let's say there's a technique and it's a groin, it's a groin strike, either a front kick to the groin or a knee strike to the groin or an arm bar. Doesn't matter. That's the technique. Then there's the training method. You could, if you wanted, practice the knee strike 1,000 times a day in the air against no resistance. And that might help. That'd be kind of like a shadow boxing type setup. And it's better than nothing. So that's rehearsal with no pressure, with no opposition, with no resistance. And it's, it's good for basic body core coordination, but it's not sufficient. Then the next levels of training are hitting something or working with somebody holding a kicking shield where you're sinking the knee into the kicking shield. And that's also useful because you're developing power now. And you might be developing things like distancing and, you know, just the idea of having somebody in front of you. And that's good, but not sufficient. And then there are drills where there's artificial pressure created. You know, like people are yelling at you, say, you're doing this, or people are shoving you and you still have to do the knee. Or you don't know when the person's going to put the kicking shield in front of you. And then you've got to be aggressive about the knee. And that's good stuff. But again, until you have real resistance, you're never really going to develop that technique. You do have to do some form of sparring, otherwise known as training against real resistance, where you're trying to do something to someone and they're trying to do it back to you. So I think back in time to a couple of, I have these incidents frozen in my memory. Incident one, I was 11 or 12 years old. I met my best friend at, in, at that time. And I met him because we got in a pushing fight about something and I kicked him in the balls thinking that he would just drop to the floor. And he didn't. He punched me in the face and I tripped and he ran away and then he kind of curled up. So it was a draw, right? I kicked him in the balls. He survived long enough to punch me in the face and then he kind of ran away. And this myth of just kick them in the balls and they'll go down is completely wrong. There are tons and tons of examples of the magic groin strike not being quite so magic. And sometimes a little flick there 
The guy can drop. Sometimes you can punt him as hard as you want and he won't feel it. Adrenaline is an amazing thing. Adrenaline allows soldiers to carry on with incredible wounds. I saw this video the other day of a tie fight and the two guys were just elbowing each other in the face repeatedly. Like we're talking 20 times. And these are trained, again, these are trained fighters. They've spent years developing their elbows and they're just there completely impassively. So if you had never sparred taking real contact and receiving real contact and seeing how you can go on, it can be really demoralizing. I think of another sparring situation, one of the first full contact sparring sessions I'd ever done where the guy dropped his hands and just stood there and I punched him as hard as I could right in the solar plexus. I was a pretty big kid. I was probably uh, 190 pounds there, pretty strong. And he just smiled at me, which might've meant that I actually hurt him and he was just covering it up, but he didn't react, didn't flinch. I just remember being completely demoralized. He took my Sunday punch and ignored it. And so if you had just trained in sort of the Krav Maga style, somebody attacks in, rah, 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 palm strike, palm strike, palm strike, knee, 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 down to the ground, hammer fist, or, or whatever the technique is, even if the person thinks they're giving you some resistance, they still ultimately go down. And that sense of despair, <laughs> dealing with that despair, you've just thrown your very best attack at somebody, and they've kind of shrugged it off, that really, you'd better experience that and develop that in sparring and learning to deal with live reactions. Because if I'm just allowing you to drill on me, if I come in with a classic reverse punch and freeze my punch out in space, and then you drop down there and do your, I don't know, technique number seven, yeah, 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 you chop to the neck, spear to the eyes, kick to the groin, take down, finish off, I'm participating in that. Or at the very least, I'm not resisting. But I'm feeding you something right. that you can then react to. Whereas if we're boxing, even if we're not boxing that hard, I'm not, I don't want to get punched in the face. We're grappling on the ground. I don't want to get armbarred. I mean, unless we're doing a very specific drill. So I'm not saying there's no value. It's a double negative. There is some value to cooperative drilling. I come out at you and I'm the big bad guy and you respond with technique number seven. There is some value to that, but certainly it can give people a huge sense of overconfidence. And I think from what I've seen, Krav Maga and many other self-defense systems are a little bit vulnerable to, are, are very vulnerable to that. I tend to totally agree because unless I'm, you know, your size and power striking and practicing every day, little me coming at somebody at, at my, you know, full force at 120 is only going to make them laugh or really going to just make them more mad and not de-escalate a situation, which is kind of the whole goal of self-defense is to de-escalate, not just increase somebody's, you know, aggression towards towards me, especially for girls too. Well, the single biggest thing you can do to de-escalate a situation is to not get as emotionally, do not get emotionally involved or as emotionally aroused or as visibly emotionally aroused right? because you can stay calm. Maybe you can talk the guy down. Maybe just by being calm, if the guy's losing his mind and you're just calmly dealing with it, I'm not saying there's always a nonviolent solution, but if there is a nonviolent solution, that's how you're going to find it. Especially with a guy, if you're yelling and screaming in my face and then I get back and yell and scream in your face, that's going to escalate. That's just a very natural progression. That's kind of a primal chimpanzee thing. I'm the bigger chimp. No, I'm the bigger chimp. Let's <laughs> find out who's the alpha chimp. If one person is non-reactive, there's a pretty good chance that that can be diffused. I, and one thing that keeps me safe as a guy and not having been, you know, not being in female self-defense situations, but this, this is more speaking to the guys in the audience, is just assuming that a certain percentage of people that I run into who want to pick a fight are mentally ill. And depending which statistic you look at, about one in 10 people is mentally ill. 
Now, I don't know if you include things like anxiety or depression, but if we just go with that number, one in 10 people is mentally ill, it's a useful heuristic because now when somebody is randomly coming up at you in the street and acting aggressively, you deal with it very differently if you go, this guy's mentally ill versus this guy's challenging me. Now, it doesn't mean that that mentally ill person can't be dangerous. Of course they can, but you, you approach it from a different point of view. You're not as ego invested in stepping up to take this challenge or this guy who just called me a bleep, 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 bleep. This guy's should be on lithium and he's not on lithium. How do I deal this without killing him, right? It's not really his fault that his mental illness prevents him from taking the drugs that'll make his mental illness better. And from a girl's perspective, and I know these are generalities, but seems, and I don't, so you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong, but at least for girls, it seems like when a girl enters the self-defense arena, it increases her ability to be assertive and a little bit more aggressive and it, it makes her feel empowered. And for guys, it, it, it almost like sure. calms the savage beast or it gives them boundaries for all that aggression. I know that's not always true, but I know for girls, martial arts makes them feel stronger. And for guys, it creates boundaries. Well, hopefully it creates boundaries for guys because I have seen it go both ways there. But I think, especially for girls, it's kind of the flip side of what I'm talking about that right. often, and I don't want to make blanket statements, but often displaying aggression or self-confidence, get the hell, and I'm using hell as a substitute here, get the hell out of my face loudly is a pretty effective thing. Now, one thing I want to make sure that we get to, so I'm just going to insert it here. I was working on a rant for my podcast and the rant was preempted because a friend of mine, John Hackleman, did a Facebook Live about it. I'm still mad at him because he said exactly what I was going to say. And he said it really, really well. And what he said was, what's the single biggest thing that anyone can do to prevent violence, to, to prevent being in a violent situation? The one thing. And he said, it's not getting better at self-defense. It's not walking around with a gun. It's not uh, keeping your eyes, your hands out of your pocket when you're walking down a dark alley. It's none of that. All that stuff's potentially good. But what it is, is not being drunk in a public situation, not being drunk at a bar, not being drunk at a party, not being drunk when you're out and about. And it's true for men. It's true for women. When you're a teenager, okay, maybe you get in fights with guys at school or whatever. You know, I mean, you're a testosterone soaked chimpanzee at that point as a, as a young adult male. So that's, that's kind of, I'm not saying it's forgivable, but it's understandable. But later in life, if you think of all the adults, you know, who've gotten into fights, in what percentage of them was at least one person drunk and often both people drunk? And it's a very high percentage. This idea of like walking down the street and somebody jumps out and attacks you. Sure, that does happen. But most of the time you're at the bar, you're at a party, you're in an environment where there's a whole bunch of drunken stupidity going on. And I don't know what the statistics are for women, but between alcohol and then rohypnol, the date rate drug, huge number of assaults on women are with the assistance of those two drugs. Huge. So like, I guess if you have to drink, drink in a safe private place. Don't be drunk out in public where the predators can, especially if you're a girl. I mean, how many predators are out there at the bar just looking for the drunkest girl? Exactly. Well, and yeah, and I've already, I have, I have one in college and we've already done the coaching and one in high school for that matter on if you have a drink in your hand, it's your drink. Nobody else can have your drink and don't let that drink be out of your sight. So someone can't slip anything in it. Well, it's, you know what, you're not paying attention to it. And not an endless parade of exactly. drinks. Exactly. Well, okay. So I, I have two more questions and they're kind of long, but I, I wanted, I do want to ask you about your daughter and I know since you're, she's probably like, whatever, dad, about the whole self-defense because you're her dad. But if you were to give her or have you given her uh, some wisdom or advice or training, and what would that be thinking about 
the girls in my audience are the dads thinking about, yeah, I want to give my girl self-defense, but what are the top few things that they need to know or do or giving a girl self-defense skills or the value in that too? Well, I'll answer that in two parts. I mean, yes, you're right. Daughters eventually get to the, yeah, whatever dad stage for sure. And sons too, for that matter. And I think that's a natural part of growing up. But I have inculcated enough of the basics that she's not going to panic on the ground. She has some basic idea of what to do. So just not enough to compete in a jiu-jitsu tournament, but enough to handle herself against most people her own size or a little bit bigger. So that's not optional. I have done that. I'm going to continue doing that, even if there's pushback. I don't care. One day you'll appreciate this. And that's probably what most parenting is based on. <laughs> uh, secondly, there's the the talk, right? And I don't think the talks can start early enough. And I think a really valuable component of the talks, yeah, we kind of often want to couch these things in, in lessons. Never be drunk in a public place or uh, don't accept rides from strangers or don't let anyone take your drink at a party. And these are all valuable lessons when they're distilled down like that. But especially for teenagers or preteens, I don't know which is worse, they respond much better to stories. So if you have stories as to what happened to you in a situation or what happened to somebody that you know, or in my case, what I often do is I bring in female friends who've been through some bad stuff. And I say, please, Tell her you know, that story and this story because people respond to stories. And if they can relate that story to a person, it's much more real than just dad pontificating or mom pontificating about what you should do and shouldn't do. And I think we also want to sanitize our kids or sorry, sanitize what we tell our kids and protect them from the, I mean, you don't tell them the worst cases. And then in the My Lai massacre, uh, the next person who was shot was this person. They were shot in the head. No, you don't need to do that. But you can tell real stories of real situations that almost went bad or went a little bit bad and tailor it to your audience. People respond to stories and firsthand accounts. I mean, that's how we've been passing information back and forth as human beings for as long as we've been human beings. All right. So I do want to end with um, a little bit of Stefan Kesting wisdom, just the whole idea of self-defense being more than, and I guess this is, and I want girls to say, hey, you're going you're to learn a lot more about self-defense or learning jujitsu than just a few cool moves or exercises or whatever. But that whole part of diet and exercise and training on the mat versus just going to, you know, a fitness center and lifting weights or whatever, but pulling that whole, like I said, holistic, and you're right, I, I clearly am not going down the crystal road path, but holistic meaning, you know, the body, mind, and spirit, a picture of, of a girl, because those things just can't be disconnected. They are all interconnected. I loved your your blog that you wrote the other day that talked about this is more important than just learning a few cool ninja moves. And I'm in the same age category as you. Um, but if our kids can start younger with that healthy lifestyle and how jujitsu plays a part of that, it's pretty cool. So tell me a little bit about all that come together. Yeah. Fortunately, we live in North America. We're not living in South Africa, where there is actually quite a substantial sh chance that you could be shot or murdered or mugged. I mean, for the most part, most of the people that you know who've died have died from predictable things, heart attack, cancer, stroke, or ne neurodegenerative stuff like Alzheimer's. You put those together, you know, statistically, most people die from those things. If, if that's true, then there's absolutely no point in developing killer self-defense skills and packing five blades and carrying uh, you know, your 38 uh, or whatever it is that you carry. There's zero point if you're going to survive all these 
pretend attacks or potential attacks, and I'm not saying that violence isn't a real thing, of course it is, but statistically, you're much more likely to kill yourself than be killed by some other person. Statistically, you're much more likely to damage yourself than you are to be damaged by some other person. So part of self-defense has to be self-maintenance and self-preservation and doing things like exercising. I mean, there's not a single health problem that isn't improved by exercise. Every single health condition, pretty much from diabetes through to Alzheimer's through to cancer is staved off or prevented or mitigated or helped by exercise. So exercise might mean different things to different people. It might mean going for long walk, or it might mean something considerably sweatier and more difficult. It depends where you're starting. It depends how old you are. But sitting is the new smoking. I do actually believe that. I hope people don't smoke anymore. Unfortunately, people do smoke. But, but sitting is really bad for you. And we all sit. I sit, you sit, Almost everybody sits. We're not like the Maasai walking many, many, many miles a day with our cat, you know, herd of cattle. Most of us are working at some kind of sedentary job, and that's deadly. So we have to exercise. We have to find a way to build exercise in. And the sooner you start moving again, whatever that is for you, and ultimately, although I love martial arts, if you're absolutely not going to do martial arts, and I don't know why you'd be listening to this podcast if you're not, but if you're absolutely not going to do it, then please find some other way to move. I don't care if it's rock climbing. I don't care if it's swimming, mountain biking, going to the gym, swinging kettlebells, doing Tai Chi. I actually really respect the old Chinese people I see in the park every day, you know, 70 and 80 years old, doing Tai Chi. Is it a combat efficient system? No. Are they likely to live longer because of it? Yes, because they're moving. I find it terrible when you have self-defense experts who are 100 pounds overweight and get out of breath going up a set of stairs. They're not going to be killed by some attacker. They're going to be killed by themselves. I tell my girls are, you know, I, I know a lot of fitness people and they're in super great shape and they're, they're doing the CrossFit thing. CrossFit's really big right now. And I'm like, you could do that. And you, or you can be running, go to the, tre on the treadmill and run forever. Or you could, you know, learn some self-defense sure. or learn Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and actually learn a life skill and continue your fitness goals. For so sure. like, and so I, I know so many women especially who are you know into the crossfit and into the fitness thing for for very good reasons but i love i'm really trying to encourage them i'm like hey learn something learn something be mentally stimulated as you're learning yeah. you know and jujitsu is such a mentally stimulating sport because you're always thinking through a, a major bodily chess game trying to figure out where the next move is going to come from and where you're going from there so and a social activity as well. And that's what a lot of people don't give it credit for if they haven't done it, because you're nothing without your exactly. training partners. You develop some really strong social connections. There's nothing to bond with someone like trying to tear their head off. Well, yeah, just the whole community of that. that and that's the other reason too. I'm like, okay, you can do the online thing for a while and have some good training mm -hmm. partners, but there's there there's that there's that culture and that community of, of the gym. And if you find a good gym, you'll really a very cool feeling to have that gym experience. Well, I'll say this as well. A lot of people are like, man, I tried kickboxing or man, I tried jujitsu or man, I tried CrossFit for that matter, but we'll stick to the martial arts thing. And I didn't like it. Everyone there was a duck up, aggro, wannabe UFC fighter. Or everyone was running around with their shirt off. It was stinky. It was gross. Okay, right. you're talking about potentially taking up an activity that's going to take hours a week and years of your time, right? If you, if you start enjoying it, it's totally realistic to spend five years doing this and put in thousands of hours. You might not get to the full 10,000 hours, but you're going to get to thousands of hours pretty quick. So if that's the case, then it's worth your while to check out different clubs. Maybe they're Maybe the Gracie Baja down the street is fantastic. 
or maybe it's terrible. You just tried a club. It's like, I tried going to a restaurant once and the food was terrible. I'm never going to a restaurant again. Or I tried Japanese food once and it was terrible. I'm never going to try it again. Well, maybe you tried Japanese food at the at the mall, right? Maybe if you went to a decent Japanese restaurant, it would be better. Or maybe it'd be worse. Who knows? So if you're thinking about starting, especially if you have the luxury of living in a city with more than one option, you owe it to yourself to go and check out more than one, more than two, realistically, as many clubs as you can so that you find the best fit. It, it'll hugely increase the chance that you stay with it and learn those life skills. So don't underestimate the social component. It's incredibly important. Well, I, I, I got very lucky. I We went to the first one that just opened and I haven't left France, but I love, it's been a great you know thing doing the online deal. So I, I did want, you know, I want my audience to know that, you know, my program is a way to be introduced to it. And it's a great introduction, especially for young girls. But as they get older, where do you see girls and women, for that matter, fitting into your program. And I know you've had some amazing female instructors, um, but uh, do you know what your audience is? And I'm assuming it's mostly guys, but I know that I click on them a lot and I, I, I tag a few of them. But so what's your audience for the women? Well, I'll, I'll answer that in a sec, but I just heard a really interesting, it's not a formal statistic, but it's a, it's a very interesting piece of data. So a friend of mine runs a jiu-jitsu clothing and apparel company, and I wear a lot of their stuff because I like it. It's where the Picard, the, the Jean-Luc Picard rash guard that I often wear in my videos come. I think about half of their sales now are to women. Now, you can make an argument that maybe women buy more rash guards than men do. Men are like, oh, I've got one rash guard. I should be good. I can wear this at least four times this week, maybe even without washing it. Totally agree. We've, we've got to have at least one in every color. Exactly. So, okay, we'll, we'll factor in the that women might buy more rash guards. But that still means there's a huge female audience out there doing jiu-jitsu. And in particular, nogi jiu-jitsu, which is a variant of jiu-jitsu where you don't have the cloth to hold on to, which I actually thought would never take off for women because I thought that I had this theory that the gi would provide a bit more insulation between bodies and make them feel less weird. But apparently I'm wrong. Apparently this is a huge female nogi market out there. Maybe it's because of all the cool rash guards you can wear. I have no idea why. So it is, it's big and it's getting bigger, and that's super thrilling. To answer your question, most of my demographic is male. I don't know how much of that is, is historical, but yeah, it's male and somewhat older, And but I still have a very healthy uh, female following as well because information is information. And I, I try to be pretty honest. Like if I show a technique and you know this is really a bigger guy technique, mm -hmm. I, I try to say that. Not every technique will work for every person, and that's part of the game because unlike boxing where you've got seven or eight punches and a, you, know, you can parry with the hands and you can duck and you can step forward, back, sideways, both ways and circle. So now you've got, I don't know, like 15, 20 core techniques. Jiu-Jitsu's got thousands. So something in there is going to work for you. And it's very, very, very rare to see a 120-pound kickboxer take out a 250-pound kickboxer. But it's not at all rare for a 120-pound woman to beat a 200 pound guy on the mats if the guy doesn't isn't her level that's quite common in a real fight yeah you might end up taking some damage but and hopefully win but some chance is better than no chance and to think that you're going to come out of a scrap completely unbruised and unscraped that's pretty unrealistic you know especially when you're dealing with a gigantic size discrepancy like that but you can definitely survive and one of my favorite jujitsu sayings is survive first win later Right. You just don't want to make a huge mistake and lose right away. And the longer you survive, most of the time, the more tired the other guy gets, especially if you know what you're doing, the other guy doesn't. And the more time it, there is for help to get there. 
Yeah, I think that's where my game is, is I, I might eventually lose because everyone's younger or just faster or stronger, but I can survive a little bit longer because of my experience. And when you say lose, you mean losing to a bigger, younger blue belt, a bigger, younger, stronger purple belt. It's, I imagine that most of the time when you're dealing with white belts, you're not too concerned about losing. You may be concerned about them doing something crazy and random and putting their elbow in your eye, but you also know enough that that, although that would hurt, that wouldn't stop you necessarily. Exactly. Tell me again, a couple of your places people can find you, your website and social media and all that kind of stuff, just to Mm -hmm. kind of wrap it up here. Well, if they're listening to this podcast, then I've got a podcast. It's called the Strenuous Life Podcast. And if they would subscribe to it and leave a rating or review, I'd be super indebted. I do a lot of talking about martial arts, but I'm also branching out a little bit into fun things like survival and rock climbing and uh, kiteboarding and other sort of extreme sport type activities. So that's the Strenuous Life podcast. If they want to go check out grapplearts.com or selfdefensetutorials.com, that's where I put a lot of my stuff. Obviously, I've got a YouTube channel. And actually, if they have a smartphone, which is everybody, there's a couple of apps they should grab because they're free, or at least they're free and they get a whole ton of information. Then if you want more, they can grab more. That'd be the Roadmap for BJJ app, which is sure, sort of shows you the big picture. That's grapplearts.com slash roadmap. It's got links to that. And then the new thing is the Master app, which has got a whole ton of information on it and includes more advanced material. So that's grapplearts.com slash master app. So, but if you, if you type my name into the Google machine, then you will find a ton of stuff. That's very cool. Well, thank you so much for your time and your expertise and uh, letting me stalk you and learn from you and um, definitely be in touch. And I definitely want my uh, families to check you out as their girls get older. Well, thank you for doing your stuff because I think it's really important that girls learn the basic of self-defense. And really there is, I mean, I've trained many, many different martial arts. And if I could only choose one, jujitsu would be the one that I would teach to my girls. Awesome. Perfect. All right. Well, I will see you again soon. And um, everyone else, I'll see you on the mat. Thanks. 